far, we saw that the nation of Israel, because of their idolatry, was sent away. Israel, uh, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. They were dispersed amongst the nations. Uh, there was an attempt to really breed them out, very literally, to breed them out of existence. But God saved a remnant of the nation of Israel as his chosen people so that he could use them throughout time to be the lighthouse of his mercy and grace. God saved a small percentage of that nation, held that nation together so that they couldn't be exterminated. And he brought them back, just as his promise said that he would send them into exile. He attached a promise at the end of good news that said, I will bring you back. Don't worry. Have no fear. You're going to be gone for a long time. Generations are going to come and go and die out. But I'm going to bring you back. And he did just that through a pagan king. Uh, the Edict of Cyrus allowed the nation of Israel to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so a small percentage of those who were in exile have come back. You remember we saw that? That they, they came back and they started to rebuild the temple. And it wasn't long before they faced some opposition. Some opposition from the inhabitants of the land. And uh, the opposition, you remember, at first wasn't very overt. The opposition wasn't a direct attack. The opposition was to join and conquer, if you will. To get a foot in the door so that they, can, so that they could corrupt the worship of this orthodox people, corrupt their temple construction from the inside out, and therefore defeat the nation of Israel. Crumbize our beliefs. We're not going to let you bring in idolatry, which is the same reason we got sent into exile in the first place. We're not going to allow that to happen again. We're not going to allow this thing to be thrown off the tracks from the inside out. And so they stonewalled. They drew a line in the sand and they said, we're not going to allow that. And they rejected the help of these would-be partners in ministry. And you remember last week we saw that uh, the attackers, the enemies as they were, well, they adapted. They said, okay, if we can't work from the inside out, which is Satan's choice always to work from the inside out, it causes the most damage. They said, we'll adapt. And instead of working covertly from the inside out, we're going to give direct attacks. And you remember last week what we saw? They called on the... Well, they called on the county inspector, they called on the fire marshal, and they got permits pulled, and they went to the zoning board, and they wrote a letter to the authorities saying that this, this temple being built, it will, cause, uh, it will wreak havoc in the community, it's going to be nothing but trouble. And they, and they sent in all these accusations, got the government involved, you remember this? And said, listen, uh, these are going to be people of nothing but trouble if we allow them to continue to build this temple. They've historically been trouble, and they will be trouble in the future. There will be a thorn for the government. And you remember that the king, in the end, he agrees. And he sends out a stop work order for the nation of Israel in the building of the temple. Now, now what do you think? Because we didn't get to this last week. What do you think the nation of Israel is going to do right here if you don't look at the passage? Are they going to press on? Shimshay, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste. Those are the people who were bringing the accusations, by the way. Those are the people who were, who were basically tattling on the nation of Israel to the government. As soon as they read it, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. Now that doesn't mean that they just politely went and said, hey, you guys need to cut this out. It means what it sounds like. By force of arms, by threat of life, with the king's edict in their hand, they stopped them from work. Verse 24, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia. And if you were to look at chapter 5, 
The very first verse in chapter 5 says that when the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Idad, professed to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them, then, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God which is in Jerusalem. Now, if you're not astute, if you're not careful, you think that those two verses chronologically run right together, but they don't. You see, they got this stop work order, and by force of arms, their enemies came and enforced this stop work order. And in fact, work stopped. Now, what you need to know is that between the end of, verse, uh, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, which is only a verse in our scriptures, there are 14 to 15 years before we catch up chapter 5, verse 1. Now, notice in chapter 5, verse 1, he says something interesting here, because we might be asking ourselves... Why is it that they actually stopped? I mean, is it, is it just that they feared for their life? Could be. Maybe. He doesn't say here. He does say that they came by force of arms and stopped them. That could be it. It could be that they stopped because uh, they felt that it was the right thing to do to obey the edict of the king. They felt like it was the right thing to do to obey their government. That might be the case. Ezra doesn't tell us, but he mentions a guy who does. He mentions the prophet Haggai. So turn to your right. Let me show you what Haggai says here. About towards the end of your New Testament. And I want you to see this in your scripture. So turn with me. Haggai chapter 1. If you get to the end of your Old Testament, you've gone too far. Haggai is just probably two or three pages long in your, in your Bible. It's just after Zephaniah, just before Zechariah. Ezra mentions the prophecy of Haggai. And he says that Haggai, at his prophecy, the nation of Israel, started work again. Fifteen years later, work started again. What was it that Haggai had to say as a prophet of the Lord that caused them to start work again? And does it tell us anything as to why they stopped work in the first place? Or more specifically, what kept them prophet is just the mouthpiece of God. And so whatever the prophet has to say is what God has to say directly to the people. The word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, that's the political leader, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, that's the spiritual leader of the nation. And here's what he said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people, notice that God doesn't call them my people right here. You ever do this, moms, dads? Yeah. Your son over here has been throwing fits all day. Do something with him, right? It's my son when he's doing right and when I'm, when I'm embracing him. I wonder if that's what God has in mind here. This people, this people says this, and God's quoting the heart of the nation of Israel in this lapse of construction. This is God's estimation of the heart of Israel in which caused the lapse. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. It's not the right time. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time? God questions back. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate it's not time to build my house but you've had plenty of time to build your house 
And as a matter of fact, your house is looking stone much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Uh, meaning that none of, this, none of this is working out exactly like you thought it would. I mean, all this that you've been working for, you understand that it, at some point you've got to realize it's just vanity on top of vanity. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. That means add this up. See if it makes any sense what you've done, what you're not doing. Consider your ways. It's a mathematical term that means add up your life and see if it's calculating to be what you had hoped it'd be. Consider your ways. Verse 8, go up into the mountains. Bring wood. Rebuild the temple. That I, and circle that I right there if you got a pen. Because the emphasis thus far for the nation of Israel has been on me. But God says, let's change that. Go. Go into the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. The inference there is that you have been glorified and you have been pleased to build your homes and spend your life on you. God says, if you were to take an honest look, the truth is that's really not even adding up to what you thought it was going to add up to. Why don't you go back for much, verse 9, but behold, it becomes little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth withheld its produce. 11, I called for a drought on the land and on the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil and what the ground produces on men, on cattle, on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, look at this shift of hearts right here. Look at this move to obedience. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. They understood he was the mouthpiece of God. And the people showed reverence once again for the Lord. All right. So that brings us back. Turn back to Ezra chapter 5. That brings us back to the temple reconstruction in Ezra chapter 5. So here's what happens. The inside attack by the would-be partners in ministry, it didn't work. Israel shut it down. The outside attack, it came, it came hard. And it was no joke. It was a literal threatening of their lives, perhaps. Stopped. Why they didn't pick back up the work. Haggai tells us that it wasn't so much about the opposition. There's no mention. There's no mention by the prophet Haggai to take courage, to not be afraid. There's no mention by the prophet that, that God will defend them. So you get the idea that that wasn't really their problem. Maybe it sparked it. Maybe we could say that the opposition slowed, slowed their work to the point where they were discouraged enough to step aside. But at the point that they stopped... And we ask ourselves, why did it take 15 years to rebuild again, for work to begin again? 
prophet Haggai, by word of the Lord, gives us the answer. And the answer is this. They became distracted. They became distracted. And can I tell you right here at the beginning that if the enemy can't get on the inside and do his work, if the enemy then can't attack from the outside and so discourage you and put fear in you that you run away from the work of the Lord, he loves, he loves to see how long he can distract us from building the kingdom. And if he can take us out of the game for 15 years, well, that's 15 years that the kingdom doesn't get built. Allow the enemy to work from the inside out. They had some sense of holiness about them. But at some point, their focus shifted from the reason that God brought them back to a selfish endeavor in life. One could even argue that they were only following the instruction of government, but Haggai indicates that at some point the nation should have found a way to get back to work. At some point, by all indications, they should have found a way to get back to work. And when Haggai steps on the scene and he critiques their decisions, it's not a critique of their laziness. It's not a critique of their fear. It's not a critique of their bad judgment. It's a critique of their focus. Where are you spending your life? Are you spending it on your glory? On your improvement? Or are you going to spend it on my purposes? On my kingdom? Can I show you what happens? Can I show you what happens when you are obedient to God's calling. Look at chapter 5. When the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Idod, professed to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, colleagues, all these guys who have been against the nation of Israel, they came and they spoke to them, and this is what they said. The nation of Israel cranks back up after 15 years. Is the threat going to go away? No, the threat's not going to go away that easy. These guys are right back at it. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Look at what their response is. Then we told them according to the names of the men who were reconstructing this building. Can I tell you, that takes guts right there. There is no fear in these people. You want to know where we got this decree? You want to know what we're doing, who we are, why we're here? Let us just give you a list. Let's write down the names of all the men who are involved in this reconstruction. In some sense, they had to know they were signing their own death warrant. Verse 5, But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. So we get another, we get another call to the king of the day. Fifteen years later, almost the exact same situation, the temple reconstruction begins again. They say, You want to know who we are and why we're here and what we're doing here? Let's give you a list. And so these enemies of the temple work, take that list, and they mail it off to the new king, and they say, listen, these guys are back at it. What are you going to do about it? But the eye of their God was going to honor their obedience. Look at chapter 6. King Darius issued a decree, and search foundations be retained. 
its height being 60 cubits and its width being 60 cubits. Very specific here, what he finds. With three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers. And let the cost, check this out, let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Look who's going to foot the bill. The government themselves. Verse 5, And let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought back to Babylon, be returned and brought to their places in the temple of Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. When uh, Babylon ransacked the temple, burned the temple down, they took all the gold, they took all the utensils, they took anything that was worth anything, and they took it and they put it in their temples. When Cyrus and the Assyrians defeated Babylon, they took it all. And when they said, go back and build your temple, they said, you can have all your things back. Verse 6, Now therefore, to Tanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and your colleagues, these are the guys who are causing all the trouble, the officials of the province beyond the river, look at what the new king says, keep away from there. Leave this work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Are you seeing what's happening here? When you are obedient to a call of God, when God says do this and you are obedient to it, you've got to understand that God will provide said to do. Now God will back that up. Look at what else he does here. It backfired on these, these would-be partners, doesn't it? They complain to the king and the king sends back, leave them alone. Let them do exactly what they were told to do from the beginning. In fact, we'll pay for it all. Moreover, verse 8, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury. We already knew that, right? Cyrus already said that would be true, but look at where it comes from now. It comes from a specific line item in that royal treasury. Out of the taxes of the province beyond the river. And that without delay. You want to complain about these, these Israelites rebuilding their temple? We're going to pay for it, but specifically you're going to pay for it. We're going to take it out of your profits. And so the pagans get to pay for the temple. Verse 9, whatever is needed, not only do they get a check for the expenses, they get a blank check right here from the king. Whatever is needed, both young bulls, rams, lambs, for a burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat and salt and wine and anointing oil, as the priests in Jerusalem request, it is to be given to them daily without fail, that they may offer acceptable sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. It's an interesting end of that verse right there. I hope they're praying for me. Verse 11, And I issued a decree that any man adds a blessing, if you can believe it, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this degree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. With all diligence. Very simply, um, Israel, they weren't necessarily sinful people. They battled sin. They fought for the purity. Something happened. And here's the deal. We don't get the full backstory, But through the prophet Haggai, God indicates to us that somewhere in there, once they were forced to stop, 
they should have stepped back up and been obedient to the call of God. All indications from what happened in chapter 5 and chapter 6 tell us that God would have provided a way. God indicts them in Haggai and says, Listen, what have you been doing for 15 years? He says, I know exactly what you've been doing. Your hearts have said, it's not yet time. It must not be the right time to do what God told us to do. I mean, we've got all this opposition. Maybe we stop and see what happens. You get the idea that they stop? They begin to focus on their own life? And God says, it is time. It's time for my house to be built. Just as I said it needed to be, it's time for me to get the glory that I deserve. It's time for me to be pleased in my home. Proper response by the nation is, God, you're right. We have been distracted. But we're going to get back to work. Um, some of you, by all indications, are good, good people. You're not necessarily sinful. You're not overtly involved in heinous sin, okay? You're doing a good job combating sin in your own personal life, but there, frankly, is no real kingdom building going on apart from that. I wish I could say, <laughs> I wish I could say that it has something to do with the, with the grand opposition we are facing in our individual lives here. I wish I could say that it, as you attempt to push back the dark with this light that you've been entrusted with, that you are experiencing great opposition and that has caused you to slow. Um, that was at least in part true for the nation of Israel. The sad truth, however, is for most of us, there is no opposition. Inside out, he'll directly attack us from the outside. As we're, as we're pushing back the darkness with the light, as I thought about it last night, the truth is that for most of us, and I'm including myself in this, guys, as I go through my life and I evaluate my life and I look to see where is the opposition to me pushing back the darkness with the light, can I tell you, for the most of us, it is not there. Last week's message was irrelevant to the most of us. I mean, who, who do we preach that message to? We preach that message to those who are, who are pushing back the darkness with the light and they're facing direct opposition because of it. They're building the kingdom. They're working on God's kingdom. And they're facing direct opposition because of it. That's who last week's message was for, frankly. And when I say that it wasn't for the most of us, it's because most of us were not in the game. The most of us were not building, we're not expanding the kingdom. And so there is no opposition. This week's message is for the most of us. Because the most of us don't need to be concerned about opposition. The most of us need to be concerned with getting back in the game. The most of us need to be concerned with how much we've been distracted with our own little world over here. The most of us need to ask what I asked us. Now, most of us would have gone home, curled up in bed, and praised God 
We had a good day. He fell on his face, got off of his horse right there, stopped in his tracks, got on his face, wept and cried to the Lord and said, God, forgive me that I've not been, that I've not been the light that I need to be because there's been no opposition in my life. Um, I also gave us a caveat last week, and I want to I reiterate it, that we don't go looking for trouble. This isn't, this isn't an encouragement for you to go looking for trouble in the name of Jesus, okay? We looked at Peter, and Peter said, don't, don't, uh, don't suffer as a murderer, as a troublesome meddler. And I used the harsher word, don't be an idiot at work. And then when your boss doesn't like you, say that I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. Don't be a bad neighbor, a gossiper in your neighborhood. Don't be a tattletale to the HOA and then claim, because I'm a Christian, my neighbors don't like me. No, that's not you that we're talking to. We're talking to the guy who's working on the kingdom, who's in the business of pushing back the darkness with the light. Because when you're in that business, you need to expect that there's going to be opposition. And like the saints of old, when there is no opposition in your life, you might want to ask yourself why that is. Five-year plan on your retirement plan. As if this life is just some secular deal that's going to continue on and on and on and on and on and on. And I raise my kids and we have our good little family and I enjoy my life. And then they raise their kids and I enjoy them for a while. And then I kick the bucket and they do this whole thing over again. And it just goes on and on and on, this whole secular deal. And then we just enjoy our time while we have it. And then it just keeps going on and on as if that were the case. Let me give you three things to consider. Number one, understand your calling. Number one, understand your calling. Understand that we are ambassadors for Christ. We've been, we've been put here, left here, saved for a reason. We who are sinners, forgiven, who have, who have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, uh, our job here is to tell someone else about that. We've got to be in that game. So understand your calling. Understand why you're here. Number two, understand the times. Understand the times. This, as I said, will not go on forever. Scripture indicates that we are in this, this period of grace where God is withholding His wrath, being patient, Peter says, not desiring that any should perish. God is being patient. He's withholding His wrath so that men might be saved. He, understand the times means this. Understand that we're not in this unending, eternal life just going to continue on and on and on and on with no judgment one day. Understanding the times means understand that we live in this, in this period of grace where God is restraining His wrath, hoping that as many who will come to Him will come before they have to answer directly to Him. Number three, understand the consequences for you and the lost. Uh, understand the consequences for you means this, that you have a responsibility to spread that good news. You have a responsibility to carry this message of salvation that you've received to someone else. Listen, you will answer to God for how well you do in that endeavor. Uh, Preston told the guys a story of... Uh, a witnessing experience 
uh, Friday night, some of the guys got together and we uh, were talking about sharing the gospel. And he told us of uh, one of his recent experiences on a flight where um, he just wanted to read his Bible. He just wanted to read his Bible a little bit, listen to a little iPod, catch a nap before he got to where he was going. And he just got this overwhelming feeling that I'm going to answer one day for this guy's salvation. If I don't take the opportunity, he said, I imagine that one day when he stands before God, he might think of me, that guy who sat in the plane next to him reading his Bible but didn't say anything to him about what was in his Bible, about the good news that was in it. Understand that there are also consequences for the lost. This is... Uh, I'll confess where God has been convicting me uh, of late. Um, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the reality that is um, eternal damnation in hell. The biblical picture of what happens to a soul when they do not repent and turn to God. Uh, the consequence of that, the consequence of me not understanding what happens to that lost soul, it dulls my heart. You see that? It dulls my heart, and my passion to share with them is lessened. So God has been, been pounding me on this thing of, do you understand that that guy you pass on the street, that person that you fail to share the good and the bad news with, do you understand that they're going to have to face me one day on their own if you don't tell them that Christ will stand beside them? Understand your calling. Understand the times. Understand the consequences. Hey, where are you spending your life? Uh, I've taught Haggai chapter 1 twice before. Both times have been for a New Year's Eve message. You know why? Uh, because I, I hope that you leave this message with a new resolution, with a new commitment. I hope you've been awakened, kind of like I'm convinced that uh, the most of us, this is the issue, the most of us, the most of you, sin inside, you're fighting it, you're struggling well. But too many of us, for too long, are letting years pass by while we're focused on our life, our family, our career. We're forgetting the times. We're forgetting our calling. We're forgetting the consequences. Let's pray.